Bible and turn to Zephaniah chapter 2. You join us tonight in part 2 of a three-part drama. And uh, that drama is happening in the book of Zephaniah. So if you've not got a Bible again, just throw up a hand and one of the stewards would love to bring you one. It will really help you to have the Word of God in front of you tonight to make sure that I'm not making anything up and to make sure it's all coming right out of this book. Uh, As you find your way there, uh, in the Church Bibles, that's page 945, let me remind you a little bit about where we're up to or catch you up if you missed last week. We started last week by looking at this big picture of what the Lord was doing, that he had taken for himself a people. He'd called Israel to himself, and he'd come into a special relationship with them. And we called that relationship a covenant relationship. And all that means is that it's a relationship where promises have been made between the two parties, and there's consequences if those promises are broken. So one party says to the other, I promise to be yours, and the other party says to the other, I promise to be yours. And as long as they keep those promises... There's going to be blessing. That's the first promise. But if they break those promises, there's consequences. There's curses for those who break their covenant vows. And so we saw last week that against rebellious Judah, the Lord had sent the prophet Zephaniah to call the people out for their sin, that they'd broken God's covenant. And so to warn them of the consequences, that because they'd broken God's promises, they'd broken their promises to God, God was coming in judgment. And we saw last week that this was this great day of the Lord, a day where the Lord was going to judge all peoples, and right at the middle of that judgment was God's own people, Judah. That's what last week was all about, this judgment on all of the world. And Zephaniah gave us three reasons why the people's sin should lead them to repent as we came into chapter 2, calling them a shameful nation, worse than anybody else, and yet offering a little glimmer of hope as he called them to repent, having highlighted their sin. And that call to repentance in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, is kind of like a hinge between the two chapters. So last week, call to repentance because of their sin. That call to repentance is still right there in the middle, hanging over this chapter, which is a picture of what God is like. And the two things are both meant to come to the same point of repentance. Last week, their threefold sin. This week, a threefold picture of God that is meant to lead them back to the exact repentance of chapter 2, verse 3. That's what we're going to be doing tonight, is studying uh, chapter 2 from verse 4 onwards all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. But before we read that together, let me pray for us. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We recognize that, as we said last week, it often says stuff to us that is uncomfortable and hard to hear. But we thank you tonight that your word tells us the truth about who you are, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. You are Lord over every atom in the universe. And we thank you that we're not in the dark as to who you are tonight, but can see it clearly. So Father, we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to what we see about you in your words. Father, we pray again that you would grant for us to even tremble before the mighty God who is described in these incredible words. And we ask it for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the big idea tonight, repentance is hanging over us, and the big idea is that what you know about God should impact the way you repent. So let's read from the start of chapter 2, just to remind ourselves of what was there. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nations. Before the decree takes effect, and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, 
before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, and you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied, and Ekron uprooted. Woe to all who live by the sea, you Kerithite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you, and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and sheepfolds for flocks. The land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites, who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit the land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. You Cushites, too, will be slain by the sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as a desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost in her columns. Their hooting will echo through their windows. Rubble will fill their doorways and the beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets desolate and no one passing through their cities. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations and gather the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them. All 
my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Amen. This is God's word. So here's the plan tonight. We're going to see three great big things about God, and those three great big things about God are meant to turn us to repenting before Him. Three reasons to repent, if you like. Remember, repentance is the big idea, the big call of the first two chapters of this book. And tonight, it's a picture of God that's meant to lead us into that repentance. If you're already a Christian and you're here tonight, you're thinking, great, I've already repented. Repentance is not one step in the Christian life. Repentance is every step in the Christian life. And so if you think, I've already repented, you need to be a repenter forever. I'm making quite a big deal of the fact that this has got a lot to say to Christians, because think about who this book is written to. It's written to Judah, God's own people. And as much as tonight is a call for repentance from all the nations, and it is... It's also a very clear call to God's own people. As we see the nations get judged, it's meant to have an effect on us. It's meant to lead God's own people into further repentance from the very things the nations are doing. Now, I know there's not a perfect parallel between Judah and the church, but there is a definite connection. And as we looked at Zephaniah last week, we saw that Zephaniah is not a book for all the filthy heathens that are out there but a book for the filthy idolaters that are in here. That is true tonight also. Everybody who reads this book is meant to be moved by the picture of the God portrayed in this book. So whether you've known him for a long time or you've never seen God before, you are meant to be moved by him tonight. Seeing God is is meant to affect what you do. And so we're going to look at these three reasons to repent. The first one is a great big reason. God is the king of all the universe. Reason one to repent, God is the king of all the universe. You'll see straight away in the section we're looking at, if you flick back to 2 verse 4, we start off with this list of foreign places and all these exotic sounding Middle Eastern places. But it's really helpful to remember that there's a link between verses 3 and 4. In fact, there's even a word link that's not in our Bibles and I cannot understand for the life of me why. Verse 4 should begin with the word for. It's there in the Hebrew. It's there in the Greek that Jesus and the apostles use. It's there in every other English translation of this text. The NIV just had a blob day, and I'm sorry. But verse 4 begins for. That, because, because of what's going on in chapter 3, at 2 verse 3, verse 4 happens. So verse 4 and everything that follows is linked, inexorably linked, to this repenting. The seeking of the Lord, seeking of righteousness, seeking of humility. And it's so it's also linked to escaping from judgment through that repentance. So this chapter is about the very same thing. So if you've got a pen, feel free to scribble on our church Bibles and write four, because it should be there. So what's going on with these nations that would cause Judah to repent and should lead us to repent tonight? We're going to pull up a map on the screen. I don't know if you're into maps or geography, but this will really help you to understand it. So you see there, the bluey thing in the bottom is Judah. That's really hard to see from here. It might be easier for you. So if you imagine Judah is right in the middle, look at what's going on. Verses 4 and 7, we talk about Philistia, Gaza. That is all over to the west, that kind of pale green tealy color, over to the west. Verses 8 through 11 then move over to Moab which is that kind of beigey blob just to the right, 
over to the east. The next thing it says is a place called Cush, which is miles down south, way off the map, in the middle of Egypt, somewhere in Africa. The next place it goes to is that massive thing that takes over everything to the north, Assyria. The book begins tonight by going round the points of the compass. It is saying to the east, to the west, to the south, to the north, God's judgment goes out. This is a book that declares a judgment on all of the world. And it goes through what that judgment looks like throughout this localized picture of the world. But know this, geography in Zephaniah 2 is meant to teach us theology. I'm not interested in whether you know maps. I'm not interested if you remember that it's east, west, south, north. The point here is that God is the God of all the world. He is king over all of the nations. Our God is a God of universal reign and rule and power. He is the one king over all the kingdoms, including the thing that's right in the middle of the compass, Judah. God goes around the nations and then comes right back home because God is the king over all the nations and he is king right back at home. As our Sunday school reminds us whenever they sing, our God is a great big God. He is king over all the world. So if you're here tonight and you're not from Jerusalem or you're not from a country that you'd say was a Christian country, you think, oh, I'm from a different country where there's a different God. No, God is king everywhere. The one God is king over all all of the nations. He's king over Scotland. He's king over Jerusalem. He's king everywhere because he is the one and only. And the point here as we go around the compass points is really clear. This God who is Lord over the nations is judge over the nations. He's God everywhere. That little place, Cush, miles to the south, It's nowhere. It's like miles and miles and miles away, not a big deal. And yet God is God and judge, even in Cush. That's like saying God is God in deepest, darkest Peru to some Victorian who's never even imagined that a place could be that far away. God's God there. God is not only a great king in weird, obscure foreign places. He is a great and mighty king. He doesn't just deal with distant nobodies. He levels great giants. That kingdom to the north, looking at verses 13 to 15 together, Assyria. This is the world superpower, the most mighty nation that exists. God has used it previously to destroy Israel. And now God takes that very nation, even its capital city, Nineveh, which is the greatest city in the world, amazing walls, secure, safe, undefeatable, unrivaled, But God, the God who is God everywhere, is God there. And he is going to make it a place that will be left scoffable. From this geography lesson then, we realize God is God everywhere, all around the compass. We learn that God is God even in places that are miles off and make no difference. And that God is a God greater than even the mightiest powers you can imagine. To put it into perspective, Assyria is kind of like USA plus UK plus China, China, and then some other places. It is a massive megapower, and God is just going to roll right over it. He is the judge of all the nations. So, for God's people, as they sit in the middle of that compass and watch God promise judgment all around, what are they meant to think? God is king and judge here, too. He is Lord everywhere. We should revere the God of all the nations as a nation. 
we should seek humility before the God who is great and vast, as we heard in 2 verse 3. And as we look at this God and how he judges the nations, we get a great insight into what he judges about them. God is the judge of all of the world, but he judges justly. He is great and he is powerful, and he does stand in judgment. But as we skim through these little glimpses around the compass, we see what he stands in judgment against. Flick back with me to chapter 2. Let's look to the west, to the Philistines. This is a group who have got in the way of God's plans. Actually, they're living in a place that should belong to Judah, but Judah could never quite kick them out. It's a place that's marked by idol worship, the kind of idol worship that has crept over the border and is now filling Jerusalem. It is a place that has long stood at odds with God and with his people. And so what do we see? Verse 5, the word of the Lord is against you. The writing has been on the wall for a long time for these Philistines. But soon their great nation, their wonderful place to live, is going to be sheep fields. What's the point of it being sheep fields? Where do sheep live? Not near people. There's going to be no people left. It's going to be the perfect place to have sheep because nobody's going to be there. Then we look to the east, to Moab. Again, there's a big historic beef between Moab and Judah and Israel. Again, there's a history of them getting in the way of God's purposes. But here we see them teasing, taunting God's own people. The God who is king over all the universe knows exactly what's going on in this place. Look at verse 8. Is he aware of what's happening? I have heard the insults of Moab, the taunts of the Ammonites. And then we see that he's upset because they've taunted his own people, who he is linked to, so much so that when they insult the people, they insult God. And he is not okay with it. What Judah was meant to do was image God to the world around them. And so if you're there in Moab, just over the border, you're meant to see Israel and see their God, see Judah, see Jerusalem, and come and worship him. But instead, they taunt and they mock Judah and they mock their God. And verse 10 tells us exactly why. It is the pride in their hearts. Look with me at verse 10. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. Their pride was a problem. The king of the universe hates pride. You want to know what this king's about? He's against pride. He judges it. We saw last week in that section that we studied that God is a jealous God who deserves and demands and requires the praise of all peoples. He's not that way because he's egotistical, but because he's worthy. He is the God who made and sustains all things. He is the God of the universe, and he made that universe to be for his praise. He made people to be for his praise and to enjoy praising him. That's why the idolatry and the pride are such a problem. Idolatry robs God of, God, God of his glory as we lift stuff over God. Pride robs God of the glory that is due to him as it lifts us above God. Nowhere is that attitude better personified than in Nineveh. Flick over the page with me. Nineveh was an amazing place, a great city, but its greatness had only increased its pride. Look with me at verse 15. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. Because of its greatness, it thought it was untouchable. Because of its walls, it thought it was safe. It didn't need any gods. 
So sure are they of themselves that they even thought themselves a God. Do you see that boast in verse 15? I am the one, and there is none besides me. Pride at its core is blasphemy. It is the lifting of self above God, and God is not okay with it. Only he can make that claim. And as the great God of the universe, he has the right and every reason to judge these people. God is not unjust in Zephaniah. He is righteous and he is holy, and he is right to judge this pride. So what about Judah? As they look and as they listen to what's going on in the geography around them, as they start to see and hear this stuff happen, what is meant to happen to them? Look with me at chapter 3, verse 6. This is what's going on around them, but what is meant to happen in them? I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left the streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. This is what they've seen, what's meant to happen. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. What they saw happening around them, the lesson of this geography was meant to lead them to a repentance that would save them from this judgment. Even in their history, this is what they were meant to learn. They'd seen this happen. In fact, in the reign of Josiah, Assyria falls. Babylon, next to nobody, comes up and takes Nineveh, the greatest city of the day. And the people of Judah see it happen. And as they watch God judge the nations, and as they watch him judge it for their pride, they're meant to see that pride in themselves and so repent of it. And if they do, they will be spared from that destruction themselves. Seeing the greatness and majesty of God is meant to turn their hearts to seek him, seek humility, and seek righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 3. When God reveals his greatness and his glory, it makes even foreigners turn to him. Look back with me at 2, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth, when he gets rid of idols. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. The greatness of God changes people as they see it. As we realize he is God and judge over all the universe, it's meant to move us to repentance. So even if you're not in Judah tonight, you are in the distant nations, and you are seeing the king who is Lord over all things and judge over all things. So the call is there. God is great. Seek humility before the great God. God is the only Lord. Seek the Lord. Don't be like Judah in 3 verse 7. Come with me back to it. They could have been spared from all of these punishments. 3 verse 7, what happens at the end? Did they repent? But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. They were reluctant to repent and they didn't fear this great God that they'd seen in the prophecy of Zephaniah. That God is king is meant to impact people. So church, are we a church that looks like there is one God on one throne that rules over all of us? If we were to ask the question, who is on the throne of your life tonight? And does your life look like somebody other than you is on the throne? What would the answer be? Does the Lord Jesus reign in your choices and in your parenting and in your pursuits and in your use of your time? 
Do you look like you know that there is a great king of the universe who is coming in judgment and hates pride? Or in your pride, do you still sit on the throne of your own life? Seeing and knowing God, a God who reigns, and seeing his judgment on other nations is a gift. It's meant to lead us to repentance and make to lead us to see our pride as we look at these foreign nations and cause humility, a seeking of the Lord, not just in a one-off moment of becoming a Christian, but in an ongoing pursuit of humility and of God. That's what we're being called to tonight. Reason number one to repent, God is king of all the universe. Reason number two why Judah should repent, the righteous God is in their midst. Reason number one, God is king of all the nations. Reason number two, the righteous God is in their midst. Flick with me to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This is all happening in Jerusalem, the city where God had come to live with his saved people. It was a stunning thing, and it takes a huge chunk of the Bible to get to the point where God is able to live. It is amazing that God has come to dwell in Jerusalem. And in verse three, chapter 3, verse 5, we see what this amazing God who's come to dwell is like. Read with me chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord within her, that's Jerusalem, is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. God is a righteous God. He is a just God. And that's meant to be the best news ever for people who live with him. It's meant to transform the way they are so that they see the great God's with us. Let's obey his commands. We want to be like him. So if he is righteous and just, we're called to be a people defined by righteousness and justice. And that justice was a gracious justice that had taken them from being a nation of nobodies to being God's very own. So now they're meant to be a people who within their community take nobodies, the poor, the lost, the orphan, the widow, and treat them well so that the whole nations around them see what God is like through how they behave. Instead, some other stuff is going on. What do they look like? Do they look like the God who's in their midst? Let's read together, chapter 3, verse 1. Righteousness and justice is what they're meant to look like. Woe to the city of oppressors. Rebellious and defiled, she obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. God pronounces a woe on his people here because they are so not like him. The leaders who are meant to distribute justice are corrupt. Instead of serving the the poor, they exploit them, they gobble them up like lions and wolves. They act like the nations around them rather than the God who has saved them. They live in an ungodly way. Look at who they obey, no one. Who do they listen to? Who does they accept correction from? No one, not even the God who is among them. Despite having a righteous God, they are incredibly unrighteous. They don't even trust the God who saved them. They don't draw near to the God who is drawn near, drawn near to them by living in their midst. It's a little flashback to the covenant breaking of last week, isn't it? The hideousness of their rebellion. Their rulers, their priests, their prophets violating God's law and harassing God's people. No acknowledgement that God is in their midst. 
If you visited this country, you wouldn't guess that this is a place where the God of the universe lives. They are the total opposite of him. Look at what happens even at the end of verse 5. They live with the glory of God in the middle of their city. Do they feel it? Yet the unrighteous know no shame. The presence of a righteous God in the midst of an unrighteous and unjust people, and they don't even blush. They don't even feel embarrassed about what they're like. This is a people who are immensely ugly, living right next door to somebody of unparalleled beauty, and they're not even embarrassed. This is insane. They are like the family from Shameless. They don't feel embarrassed about how hideous they are. This is like going to a royal palace, not even caring about your table manners when you sat next to the queen, continuing to burp and have your elbows on the table. It's just not right. I don't know about you, but when you go around to somebody's house that is immensely clean, you act a bit cleaner. I'm not going to mention the house that's in my head because I asked and I wasn't allowed. But there's a family that we visit and they're really lovely and the house is mega clean and mega tidy and the whole time I just feel dirty. Like I shower, but in their house I feel filthy. That's what Judah are meant to feel like. Right there is all beauty and all majesty and they're not even embarrassed at how unjust and how gross and how compromised they are. The presence of God hadn't prevented their perversion. And so now the presence of God is bad news. Before the presence of God was a great thing, to live with a God of righteousness and justice who's on your side is awesome. But now, as they've learned from the nations, his righteousness and justice means that he must judge them in their unrighteousness and their lack of justice. In this passage, God's justice is not a pretty thing. In fact, Zephaniah gives us a ton of poetic justice. Remember, prophets are always poetic, so they're going to talk in pictures and and do wordplay. And that's how God's justice is presented tonight. It might seem harsh, but this is absolutely right. That God judges people for the things he judges them for is absolutely right. He is holy. Look at what it says in verse 5. He does no wrong. So let's look at what his justice was like. His justice on Nineveh, I don't know if you know this, but Nineveh was a city that was famed for incredible irrigation. How do they look in verse 14, end of verse 13? Most irrigated city in the world, as dry as a desert. That's poetic justice. This city was famed for its architecture, the most incredible architecture in the whole world. And look at what's described as being broken in verse 14. As we read about the owls, the screech owls, where do they live? They roost in her columns. What's next? Their windows, rubble in their doorways, their beams of cedar, which were really cool and expensive and ornate, ruined. This incredible city of stunning architecture is now a place that's just full of the hootings of owls. It's laughable. That's poetic justice. What about Moab? Flick back over the page to chapter 2. Moab, this country that had insulted and threatened God's people, what happens? They receive from the hand of God, through the people of God, exactly what they taunted. As they threatened, they receive what they threatened. It's poetic justice. 
It's hard to tell in, uh, in what's being said to Gaza and Philistines in chapter 2, verse 4, but there's a lot of wordplay going on. So it kind of says Gaza, and then a destruction that sounds a bit like Gaza. So he's just playing on what they're like. So it's kind of like saying Edinburgh is going to become Deadinburgh, or Glasgow is going to get glassed, or Falkirk's going to fall over. That's what he's doing. Poetic justice. The thing that I'm going to bring on them suits them. That's what God is up to in this passage plays on what they're like, and delivers what they deserve. That's who God is. He is just. And now to Judah, who have become just like the nations, they can expect a fate just like the nations. As they've shared in idolatry and pride, so they will share in the great day of the Lord, in chapter 3, verse 8. Instead of being sad about their sin, scared about its consequences as God lived next door, they didn't even repent. They weren't bothered. They didn't seek him. They didn't seek righteousness. But we should. Obviously, we don't live in Jerusalem. There isn't a temple just up the street where God physically lives. But God has come near. God has dwelt in this world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's done so in perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. And seeing that God has come into our world in that way, seeing that we are so not like that Christ, is meant to lead us to repent. Because here's the thing, this Christ that has come and has lived in perfect holiness is coming again. And we should feel the same fear of God and the same shame and sorrow over our sin that he is coming to dwell once more. The first time he came to dwell, he lived among sinners. Not so in his return. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. He's going to get rid of sin. There's going to be no more wickedness. He's going to remove it. And he says, you just need to wait for me to return. His presence in history and the promise of his presence in the future should lead us, like Judah, to repent. Most clear application of this, though, surely has to be in the church. Although God's not physically in this room right now in a kind of seeing, floating, cloudy presence, we do believe that as Christ's body, as his temple, God lives in the church. By his Holy Spirit, he dwells in each one of us if we're Christians. So like Judah, we need to know that God's holy presence within us is meant to lead us to repent of every way in which we're not like him. Because we are meant to look like him to the world. We are meant to become more Christ-like so people see the change that God brings in us and come to join in this kingdom too. And whilst the presence of God among us as a church should definitely make us think about big godliness, to take seriously things like slipping into major sins, to think seriously about corruption in leadership, and injustice as a church family, surely, first of all, the presence of God among his people should make us take really seriously our own little sins. If God lives among us and he is so holy and so just and so righteous and we see that about him, then surely that should transform us to pursue being more like him through dealing with every little part of our heart where idols hide away through rooting through our lives to see where is pride in me and looking to put it to death. If we find idols and pride in ourselves, we need to seek the Lord, to seek humility, to seek his righteousness when we don't have our own. So here's the question, are you doing it? Are you seeking, if you're a Christian here tonight? Are you chasing after who God is and how to be like him? Let me ask you then, what have you been turning from this week? 
What have you seen in God that has made you think, I am not like that and I need to pursue that quality in myself? What in the last week have you sought after? How has humility come into your life and into your family this week? If the answer is nothing, then what's the answer going to be this week? If we don't feel our consciousness being pricked by the idea of a righteous God who does no wrong and lives within us, then we might just be en route to feeling just like Judah, totally unashamed of our sin, with cold and calloused hearts. We don't want to have our consciences seared. We don't want to become brazen and bold in our sin. We should feel uncomfortable with it every time we glance at God and so root it out in our lives. Do you take that correction from God's word? Do you obey what he says? At the heart of what you're doing, do you forget what God is like and so act like he doesn't exist at all? God is near. God is righteous. God is the king of the universe. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek the Lord. Final incredible reason to repent, and it's a quickie. As we read through this passage, you might have felt sometimes as we read through it a little bit of whiplash. So we're reading through, and it's judgment, judgment, judgment. And then suddenly there's this crazy eruption of stunning hope. You think, where's that come from? This is meant to be a judgment passage. As we've looked at this incredible day of the Lord that's coming, this terrifying judgment, it's kind of surprising when you read chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, when suddenly there's this talk about a remnant who are going to be restored in all of their fortunes and the Lord's going to care for them. As we come to chapter to verses 9 and 10, it's kind of surprising to think about God vindicating his people who have been so vile. What about in verse 11 when we see that there's going to be entire nations turning to God? What about in chapter 3, verse 7, when we see that if we repent, we're spared from judgment? There's little explosions of hope and blessing amid all of this sin and all of the cursing it deserves. So here's the final reason to repent tonight. Repent because God is a God of awesome grace. God is a God of awesome grace, and that is the best reason to repent. He's a God who deals with sin. We've seen here that he keeps talking about my people. He's faithful even though they've been faithless, and he's going to do what he's promised to do. He is a God of outrageous grace to a people who don't deserve it. Hope is coming in this passage, not because this remnant are good people. They're not. Not because they've lived well, but because God is a God who forgives and cleanses sinful people. People who see that he is the king of all the world. Who see that he is holy and has come near. And who see that he is gracious and so repent. There is hope for those people in Zephaniah tonight. He saves. He is faithful to these stunning promises. Look at what he does to this remnant in in verse 6 and 7 removes their enemies, puts them in the land of promise, calls them his people, and lets them live there forever in safety and happiness in a perfected world. That's stunning. Look at what he says then. He says, I'm going to vindicate you. As your enemies have treated you, I'm going to keep my promise to bless those who bless and curse those who curse. And so I'm going to right every wrong, and you're going to live in a place where justice has reigned forever. We saw this glimmer of hope, even in the bit that Ross read to us before. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a people kept. Although Judah is going to get destroyed by Babylon and all the world around it, there is a little group of people who are going to make it through. And they are the people that repent. They're the people that seek the Lord and come back to him. 
The Bible is clear that this restoration is coming. The restoration in this passage is a little shadow of a stunning restoration that comes after the last judgment. This is the floor plan to a great big house that's coming. And we're going to look really close at that next time in chapter 3 because it's stunning. But there are people who escape the great day of the Lord, and it all comes through chapter 3, verse 7. Look with me. If people repent, if they fear God and accept this correction, what happens? Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments would come upon her. There is a way that the punishment goes elsewhere. And we saw last week, it's that the Lord Jesus takes it on himself. God bears the punishment of the day of the Lord on himself in his son. This is his grace that we need to respond to tonight. Christ has taken all of the unrighteousness of this passage on himself as the righteous one that we might become the righteousness of God forever. If you want to seek the Lord, seek humility and seek righteousness, seek it in Jesus. Chapter 3 verse 6 gives us so much hope that if we've seen the destruction of the nations, we can turn and trust in God. Stunning thing is, verse 6 has fallen on the Lord Jesus. He is the one who's been demolished and deserted and destroyed in our place. God's justice has been done. And as we share the gospel of this stunning justice and stunning grace, chapter 2, verse 11 happens, and nations come and trust in him. They are amazed at his grace and his sovereignty and his goodness. There is a choice tonight in this passage. You either join the remnant through repenting, by accepting God's correction, hearing and heeding his call to repent, or like Judy, you can be reluctant. You can choose corruption over correction. You can reject the God that you've seen tonight, even in his love and his grace offered towards you in his son. People do it all the time. People who prefer to continue, as chapter 3, verse 7 says, in their corruption. They were eager to do it. Maybe someone tonight who truthfully prefers sin over salvation, who likes the sickness more than the medicine, who loves the darkness and is running from the light. If that's you, see the warning of chapter 3, verse 8. You can see the Lord and yield to him as king and enjoy his righteousness and enjoy his grace now. Or look what happens in chapter 3, verse 8. Wait for me, I'm coming, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, everybody, to gather together the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed. See the warning. Accept Christ tonight. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness in him. You can enjoy this God now. Or you can fear him on that day of judgment. And if you're already a Christian, do you know people like that? Do you know people that are still in the darkness? Still in corruption? We have a duty and obligation to share with them this amazing story of God's justice on the cross and God's grace in the cross to them. To show them our God in how we live as we live out this humility, acknowledging that God is within us making his presence a reality in our lives. And as we do that, all the world gets to see him. The truth is that all the world will get to see him either way. It is now in grace or then in judgment. Let's pray.